quantum technology, quantum computing is so arcane. Do we really think that these investors know what they're investing in? Where do you see quantum effects? You see them everywhere. That's how nature operates. So to identify the right kind of quantum effect, to be able to harness it, to be able to make it programmable, as you mentioned, is really the task. Google introducing BARD, which is their large language model, generative AI technology based in Lambda, which made huge news last summer when the Google engineer came out in a blog saying that Lambda has a soul and is a person. AI Cloud Quantum is a really good direction in my mind. I think the steps they've taken to transform the company are very difficult and they have done a good job of doing that. It's one of the fastest chips out there and it's seven nanometer technology done by global foundries and it's just a fabulous chip. I love it. From Orion X in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, Shaheen. Good to be with you again, as always. Good to be back. How are you? So we kind of have a bit of a kitchen sink episode this week, looking at some news items and drawing bigger picture kind of conclusions, if possible. That sounds good. Yeah. So in quantum, quite a bit of news is coming out. Just one piece of news after another announcements around new technology. We have a company called, for example, Q-Era, and they've announced an encoding advance that they say allows for solving a wider set of applications. This is programmable quantum systems. And then, for example, we have Raj Hasra, who is an HPC industry veteran, 25 years at Intel, really Mr. HPC to a great degree at Intel. Then he went to Micron and was pretty senior there, but now he's showing up. He's just been announced as the new CEO of Continuum, which is a very interesting company. That's the merger of Honeywell, Quantum Solutions, and Cambridge Quantum. So they're a heavyweight in this in this industry. Very much. And then lastly, I'll get through this very quickly. Quantum Brilliance, an Australian quantum company, they've raised $18 million US. This is a company that uses synthetic diamonds to operate at room temperature, quantum systems at room temperature in any environment. So I think you had some thoughts on all of this. It is an area that we track. So just in general, to set the scene, quantum computing is still a few years out. Lots of progress. I think we averted quantum winter last year, but we're not immune to it this year. Money continues to roll in. As I like to say, where do you see quantum effects? You see them everywhere. That's how nature operates. So to identify the right kind of quantum effect, to be able to harness it, to be able to make it programmable, as you mentioned, is really the task. And as a result, you've got a half a dozen different approaches to it, from trapped ions to superconducting to neutral atoms to photonics to synthetic diamonds, as you mentioned. And it's hard to know which one is going to win out. I don't think we're even close to a VHS Betamax situation where even the potentially inferior technology has the momentum and is going to win out. So all of that, I think, is one reason why you continue to get investments into this area. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. You know, a talking point I've said a few times, and you've kind of debunked it 
actually, uh-huh. is that quantum technology, quantum computing is so arcane. Do we really think that these investors know what they're investing in? And you said, yeah, they kind of do, actually. I mean, now they don't know which will be the winning strain of technology or when it's all going to happen. But they're not just throwing money blindly either. No, not at least the ones that I've had visibility to with the VC community and the private equity community and even individual professional investors who are technically oriented. I think all of them do quite a bit of due diligence and they're managing a portfolio. So within that portfolio, what they do generally makes sense for them. I think when you go away from that community and you talk about the general public or you talk about some of the politicians, not all of them, because some of them have very superb staff that works with them and for them and can do all the staff work to make sure that they're on the right side of the science, Mm -hmm. then it becomes a little bit murkier. And of course, as our last episode with Satoshi-san and Torsten indicated, there is a bunch of myths and hypes and you know legends <laughs> in the market that their paper so eloquently instigates a discussion about. Yeah. Now, there is there could be issues around the typical expectation timelines for venture investments to pay out. And with Quantum, we know we're looking at a pretty long-term investment timeframe. On the other hand, there is real work being done in quantum right now. So who knows? Yeah, definitely. I can rattle off. And in fact, you know, to our listeners, if you have not listened to the episode that we did with Brookhaven National Lab, please do. We covered quantum sensing, quantum communication, as well as quantum computing. And you can see all of them at a place like Brookhaven. And monetization and the end user revenue is different for each one of those. And so definitely a very good episode. But the U.S. has the National Quantum Initiative that has a lot of money behind it. Just in the past month, you've had Oxford Ionics raise 30 million pounds for trapped ion. IonQ, one of the early SPAC movers, they were like really early in the SPAC funding methodology, really combining financial engineering with actual engineering, which is kind of the name of the game many times. So they acquired some assets of a company called Entangled Networks in Toronto. So they have a presence in it a hotbed of quantum technology there. They have facilities in Seattle. Canada as a country announced a national quantum strategy with $360 million over seven years, looking at R&D, looking at talent and retaining talent in Canada, as well as commercialization. Like literally a week before or after that, they announced $40 million into Xanadu, one of the leading photonics quantum computers based in Toronto. A couple of years ago, they put another $40 million in D-Wave, the original quantum computing company out of Western Canada. In France, we have Pascal, another neutral atom company, raised 100 million euros. Another new company called Wellink, W-L-I-N-Q. You must have a Q in your name in this business. <laughs> raised 5 million euros in pre-seed, also neutral atoms. And then there was finally some news out of China, a company called Turingo said that they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars, but they didn't say exactly how much. Mm. So money continues to pour in is the point. And I think money continues to pour in because as we've discussed before, companies, countries, organizations cannot afford not to play. And in the grand scheme of things, you know, 50, 100, 200 feels like the price of admission. Well, from a national security and overall competitiveness perspective, I mean, this is another area of competition with China. And you do hear voices of alarm, I guess you could say, that we have to be there. We have to be competitive. If China stole 
march on us on quantum. That could be a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. It's a mandatory. Now, before we move off of the quantum thread, I want to point out the HPC connection. We talked about Raj joining Quantinium, and of course, he's got HPC chops. But if you look at his resume, his career, he started out in NASA. Mm. And then Tony Utley, who ran the Honeywell Quantum Initiative before they merged with Cambridge Quantum, he had his start at NASA down in Houston. Right there, you've got two NASA connections, and HPC connections show up everywhere in this business. So once again, I'd like to wave the flag of HPC (laughs) and say that all good things have their roots in HPC and will end up in HPC. So anyway, I know I know I'm being a little bit more enthusiastic than, <laughs> than, than I want to, but it's something to point out. Yeah. Okay. The other big news of, you know, this, this is an ongoing drama, but Google introducing BARD, which is their large language model generative AI technology based in Lambda, which made huge news last summer when the Google engineer came out in a blog saying that Lambda has a soul and is a person. But this clearly is a reactive move by Google in response to Bing and ChatGPT, which has just made a sensation. So lots of talk that ChatGPT really changes search really makes Bing a different kind of competitor with Google. But the problem with the introduction of BARD is that BARD promptly made a mistake, a public mistake, answering a question, and CNN called it BARD's blunder. So it's this is sort of a high-stakes game because Google's stock immediately went down almost 8%, $100 million yeah. loss. <laughs> I think the expectations that are set for AI are starting to be a little bit unreasonable, obviously these new models are very impressive. They do things that nobody really expected that they would do, but they're not without problem. They do make stuff up. Mm. If you ask it to describe the sources of the data, it does. And when it has it, it shows it. When it doesn't, it says too often, actually. It says, oh, you're right, there was no source. So you have to be careful that these Mm. things are not where you go to get the truth. In that sense, they're kind of not that different from people. (laughs) (laughs) Or be, if you're asking for the truth, be careful who you ask for the truth. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But they're going to get better and they're going to continue to get better. And I think that the fact that Google was able to respond so quickly is because they had something brewing already anyway. And that's true in several other organizations. So I expect competition to be intense in this area. And as I have said in the past, you have to remember that these tools are as much for content creation, perhaps even more so for content consumption. They summarize things. The reason they created is because they consumed all that info. Mm -hmm. They summarized it for you and the response that you prompted them for. Yeah. As part of BARD, Google is not making it public yet. It is going into its trusted tester program. (laughs) And in response to the blunder of BARD that was so public, Google came out with a statement that said, this highlights the importance of a rigorous testing process. And I'd say that's kind of an understatement. I've heard that from other major players to kind of point at OpenAI and say, great, you've demonstrated that it works, but it's got all these issues and that you got to really be careful and we're going to be those people. And that leads into a somewhat related topic. This would be IBM's new AI supercomputer called Vela. And it's cloud-based. It is not based on IBM power chips. Interesting mix of technologies here that I think you have some thoughts on. Yeah. So Vela, I had to look up, is from Italian. Vela means sale. Hmm. So for what it's worth. I thought that the system is really interesting, that 
the fact that it's VM-based and they put some effort into reducing the overhead of a VM-based system down to something that they claim was 5%, which is probably as low as you can get. And it gives you essentially the benefits of bare metal plus the advantages of the VM base. So that was kudos to them. The configuration, as you mentioned, is very interesting because they've got two second generation Xeons as well as eight NVIDIA A100s per node plus one and a half terabytes of DRAM and another 3.2 terabytes of NVMe. So these are really hefty nodes. And of course, the other interesting part was that they're using 100 gig Ethernet rather than InfiniBand. So that's also very interesting. Yeah. And we've certainly seen many instances of AI supercomputers pop up, for example, Perlmutter. And I wonder how this differs from that. Now, this is cloud-based, but just in, in terms of its overall capabilities, might be an interesting comparison. Perlmutter, of course, also NVIDIA-based. Right on. I think sort of a question it begs is that why did you not use Power10? Mm. your own chip that is really a very impressive chip. And it was allegedly designed to do AI together with accelerators and the whole open power consortium that they started initially included NVIDIA and Mellanox before NVIDIA bought Mellanox. And I think this question had been raised and it was answered that it was a question of time to market versus performance. But then if that's the reality that may be the reality for everybody and the whole software stack and familiarity of the user base with the technology might be a driving factor here. Well, yeah. And I wonder what the power, you know, that group within IBM is thinking of this system <laughs> that they got aced out I, or not. I don't know. Well, I think, yeah, they, they lost the deal. <laughs> yeah. But not to detract from the prowess of the power chip, which I have been a big fan of. Mm -hmm. Only second to their Telum chip that they're using for the Z16 mainframe, which at 5.2 gigahertz, if I remember correctly, is one of the fastest chips out there. And it's seven nanometer technology done by global foundries. And it's just a fabulous chip. I love it. It's got an AI accelerator, an encryption accelerator, a compression accelerator, a sorting accelerator, big time memory capabilities. So does Power10. You know, with all the CAPI and Open CAPI interface that they have, technologically extremely impressive and very good. However, I'm not seeing IBM be very visible in the hardware business. I no. think that their overall big time strategy of being AI cloud quantum is very valid. And they're doing a fabulous job in quantum computing, building the community and shepherding and Kiskit and, and education and academic and all of that. The Brookhaven guys were saying that they also were using IBM's systems and, and software. So all of that is really great. But the traditional computing stuff, I'm not seeing enough. Of. Yeah, clearly the company has really changed. It's been five or six years since they've really been in the supercomputing systems business. They're moving definitely toward AI cognitive. Last year, they had a non-virtual annual conference in San Francisco. Just hordes of thousands of people sort of took over a section of the city. Mm. So they are an old line company, but they're really in the process of trying to renew themselves. Well, exactly. And I think that's the way I have looked at it, that their transformation is a very difficult transformation. Mm. Clearly a multi-year, if not multi-decade. They are a very old company, lots and lots of presence all around the world, very storied past, some good, some bad, some challenging, but they're also continue to be a very important piece of the technology landscape. And I have always given them good marks for their difficult transformation. 
kind of expecting that it's not going to be smooth sailing. But again, AI cloud quantum is a really good direction in my mind. I think the steps they've taken to transform the company are very difficult, and they have done a good job of doing that. They bought Red Hat, big time, bet the company kind of an acquisition that made them significantly relevant to the customers, but not without challenges. So they have to continue to execute. And the hardware piece, they could clarify. I think that part is a little bit less than what I would have liked to see. Yeah. But that, as you say, AI cloud quantum, that's a gutsy decision. That's a gutsy road to go down. You know, they have traditionally had a great strategy process. True. They kind of got unlucky in my mind with AI because they rolled out Watson. Uh, My joke is that like two days before deep learning became a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, so recalibrating for that was difficult. And of course, it's a big company with lots of history, lots of management, lots of layers. And turning that ship is, uh, is difficult. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that update, Shaheen. All right. And as always, great to be with you. Thanks so much. Excellent. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC podcast is a production of OrionX in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening.